You're listening to Uptown Radio. It's Thursday, March 25th. I'm Kate Stockram. And I'm Renee Roden. Undocumented essential workers are hunger striking. They're demanding help for those who haven't gotten any unemployment benefits. Our members decided to put their bodies on the line so that Albany would see the desperation and the links that people are willing to take to win this fund. The stimulus bill passed at the beginning of March without a federal minimum wage. We explore the history of that fight. Prosperity is just around the corner, say the hopeful headlines. There's been a biking boom in the city. Now cyclists are asking for more space. And this path is being shared by, you know, people walking, cyclists. I've actually even seen someone come over with a literal washing machine. And recreational marijuana is on its way to legalization. All that and more on Uptown Radio. But first, the news. From Columbia Radio News in New York City, I'm Megan Zares. State lawmakers finalized a deal with Governor Cuomo to legalize the sale, production, and consumption of recreational marijuana. The proposed plan would generate an estimated $350 billion in tax revenue. The bill gives most of that spending authority to the legislature, not the governor. But until the law goes into effect next year, recreational smokers will still be prohibited from lighting up legally. The NYPD says it will be deploying more plainclothes cops in response to last week's shootings in Atlanta. Commissioner Dermot Chea says the goal is to combat anti-Asian violence. Almost one in every 10 New Yorkers who died of COVID-19 last year was buried on Hart Island. The island has long served as the final resting place for some of the poorest New Yorkers. According to analysis released today by nonprofit newsroom The City, the Potter's Field saw a spike of activity in 2020, surpassing records set during the AIDS crisis. There's three months left in the race for New York City mayor, and half of New Yorkers are still undecided. The field of candidates narrowed a bit yesterday when Carlos Menchaca announced he'd be suspending his campaign. And some might have woken up this morning thinking their building had been swallowed by a giant cloud. But the fog has lifted, and it's 68 degrees here in Manhattan with some patchy sunshine. And some good news for all the struggling actors. Mayor Bill de Blasio says New York City's theater workers will get their own dedicated vaccination sites soon. The show must go on, and the show will go on on Broadway. Eligible actors, stagehands, and ticket takers will be able to get their shots at pop-up sites at some theaters next month. For Columbia Radio News, I'm Megan Zares. This is Uptown Radio. I'm Kate Stockram. And I'm Renee Rodin. 110 years ago today, 146 people, mostly young Jewish and Italian immigrant women, lost their lives in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. The tragedy was a turning point in the U.S. labor movement. It prompted new regulation and spurred a growth in unions. As Jack Stone Truitt reports, its legacy remains as relevant as ever. Allison Scola crouches down with bright blue chalk staining her hands as she inscribes a name onto a sidewalk in the East Village. So today I am talking Rachel Grossman who lived at 98 7th Street, and she was 17 years old on March 25th, 1911, when the Triangle Fire happened. Since 2004, volunteers have gone to the places where victims of the fire lived and written their names in chalk on the sidewalk. 
mostly in tenement buildings in lower Manhattan, but also in the Bronx in Brooklyn. Scola has been doing it since 2011. And so here's my attempt at remembering her and what she contributed to, for our sake. So we have safe work conditions and reasonable work weeks and that sort of thing. It's, it all started here, really. We have to remember that. It's become an important commemoration for descendants of the victims as well. Bill Swersey's great-grandfather perished in the fire only three months after arriving in the United States. There's something really poetic about this impermanent memorial and then doing it every year. Volunteers are chalking names as usual today, but the official commemoration ceremony put on by the Remember the Triangle Coalition will be virtual this year. Andy Sosin is a former educator working with the coalition. She co-authored a book called The New York Triangle Factory Fire. She says the fire alerted the public to the horrors of unregulated industry. It was a seminal event because it awoke the country to the need for regulation of capitalism and government regulation of workers' safety and um, other progressive legislation came after the Triangle Fire as a result of the outrage of the tragedy. The fire was hardly the first horrific incident involving workers in the United States. But its dramatic nature, with young women jumping from windows to escape the smoking Greenwich Village factory, attracted widespread attention. Joshua Freeman is a labor historian. He says there are many low-wage workers today in the U.S. dealing with unsafe conditions. COVID-19 has only made that situation worse. And many of them don't have a lot of recourse in terms of the uh, safety conditions that they face. Certainly in the last year, we saw a, 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 a tragic uh, decimation of what we call essential workers uh, who, who uh, suffered, um, in many cases working in close quarters. This was not fire, it was disease. But, you know, uh, these problems have certainly not gone away. For those organizing this year's Triangle Fire commemoration, the fight against unsafe labor conditions goes on. They say remembering the lives lost 110 years ago is more important than ever. Jackstone Truett, Columbia Radio News. Allison Martin, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So is the passage of this bill good or bad for New Yorkers? Uh, well, you know, I think that depends on which side of the argument you're on. I think broadly, it's a criminal justice win. The ACLU's done a lot of work around cannabis usage rates. And white cannabis users and people of color who use cannabis use at similar rates, but people of color, black and brown folks, are generally about four times as likely to be charged with, you know, a cannabis-related crime. So from the sort of 30,000-foot criminal justice standpoint, it would be it would be very much a win. Does it mean that folks who have a criminal record in this space would have that expunged? We don't specifically know what it's going to look like in New York yet. In New Jersey, for example, there was a lot of back and forth during the process about what crimes specifically are we expunging? And they had this like sort of specific aspect of their penal law that kind of hung things up for a while during the passage of the implementation bill. But yeah, I think New Yorkers can expect some kind of expungement. I think that's a priority for the lawmakers who are um, debating and discussing and negotiating this bill right now. So some lawmakers have been concerned about what this means for sort of traffic laws and cannabis impaired driving. Do we have a sense of what that final agreement on that area of the bill will look like? No. In fact, according to my sources, as of Wednesday evening, 
Um, while there were many media reports that the deal had been reached, the vehicle traffic law potential for cannabis impairment issue seems to still be the final sticking point. There's, there's a balancing act and concern over um, avoiding over-policing of cannabis consumers while also maintaining, obviously, safe roads. It's really interesting because, um, you know, there's no kind of industry standard to test for cannabis uh, driving impairment similar to, you know, like a breathalyzer for alcohol. We all know what 0.08 means. For New Jersey specifically, I know that there isn't a provision for growing cannabis at home. But in New York's policy, it sounds like that is going to be part of our bill. Um, why is that important? What does that difference mean? Here are a few reasons that, you know, advocates push for homegrown cannabis, for example. It's much, much cheaper. Cannabis in general isn't very expensive to grow, but, you know, policymakers like to try to nail that balancing act of having um, taxes high enough that they're, they're just above uh, the illicit market so that, you know, they're not inadvertently fueling that illicit market activity. I think a lot of lawmakers are concerned about home grow because, you know, if somebody's growing six plants at home, you know, who's going to come knocking on their door to say, oh, wait, you have 12 plants. Oh, wait, you have 18 plants. You know, there's this kind of like middle ground where people can kind of have a, you know, like a little basement grow or a little backyard grow, have side income. Um, that's the kind of thing that lawmakers are, are generally concerned about. Allison Martin is the co-founder of Cannabis Wire. Allison, thank you so much for sharing with us today. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. The recent passage of the $1.9 trillion stimulus package was widely celebrated by Democrats, but one key Democratic policy was not included, a $15 an hour federal minimum wage. Workers across the country are pushing for change. But the fight for the minimum wage started long ago and close to home. As Leila Das reports, New York City paved the way. It was the start of the 20th century. Employers could pay their workers as much or as little as they wanted. So women, children, and people of color usually got paid a lot less than men. Finally, they'd had enough. So they were the first to demand a minimum wage. Men were already likely to be paid better. So at the time, most weren't interested in a minimum wage. Women were even more underpaid then than they are now. That is, uh, the wage gap between men and women was something less than 60%. That's Professor Alice Kessler-Harris, a gender labor historian at Columbia University. She says men also had unions to negotiate for them, and other workers, like women, were not allowed. But then World War I hit, and women stepped in to fill the gap. In the United States today, the world of business is no longer a man's world. In New York City alone, one million women march to work each morning. And they tried to join male-dominated unions. Mostly men did not want women in unions because they feared that women would pull down the wage and that they wouldn't be reliable strikers and so on. So they organized their own, like the International Ladies' Garment Union, and by 1918, they'd passed a federal minimum wage, but only for women. But they were still paid much less than men, so women took to the streets, many of them. Laundry workers, for example, in the 30s and 40s, led by uh, uh, a combination of uh, communist and uh, black uh, women workers, uh, they went on strike in the 
uh, 1930s and were quite successful in New York. Most union workers who were white and male saw the minimum wage as a way to control them. So at first, most unions opposed raising the minimum wage. They were afraid the government would step in and cap their wages. But then the Great Depression hit. Prosperity is just around the corner, say the hopeful headlines. But around the corners wind the lengthening bread lines, and a whole new class of citizens appears in American society, the new poor. Jobs were scarce and pay was low, so the unions came on board. Professor Josh Freeman, a labor historian at CUNY, says this was the beginning of a golden age for the labor movement in the U.S. Today, people would be startled by the idea that there were hammers and sickles being carried down Fifth Avenue. The great rallying spot for all these uh, marches and demonstrations. This time, women and male supporters of the Communist Party lined the streets of New York. We had uh, Woolworth workers sitting down, occupying their stores until they were uh, recognized. We had strikes in the department stores. So there was a lot of labor militancy and a lot of pro-worker sentiment. In 1938, President Roosevelt passed the Fair Labor Standards Act and put a federal minimum wage on the books. Freeman says the labor movement reached its peak in the 60s, but that the protests of the 1930s paved the way. Since then, Congress has raised the minimum wage 22 times. Today's federal minimum wage is $7.20. In New York, it's 15, after hundreds of workers once again led a strike a decade ago. But activists say it's still not enough. They'll continue to strike. Daila Dos, Columbia Radio News. There's more to come. Stay with us. You're listening to Uptown Radio. I'm Renee Rodin. And I'm Kate Stockram. Coming up, Governor Cuomo has 10 days to sign a bill that would reduce the time people can be held in solitary confinement. How some Jewish communities are preparing for another year of virtual Passover. A new gallery selling digital works is causing a stir in the art world. These stories and more coming up. Athletes are calling out inequalities between women's and men's teams at the March Madness Tournament. But it's not just basketball. Players and coaches of many sports have been asking the NCAA for years to address disparities in how men's and women's leagues are treated. Susan Kahn is a professor of history at the University of Buffalo and a faculty expert on gender and sport. I asked her how gender inequities play out in March Madness. So we've seen social media videos in the past couple of weeks about the discrepancies at the NCAA uh, women's and men's basketball tournaments. What are they talking about? They're talking about decades of such discrepancies, and some of them seem small, like a swag bag, but I think they all go to a systemic pattern of discrimination against women that's indicated in many, many ways. And then there's the issue of funding and payouts as well, so that the teams that compete in the NCAA Women's Championship don't get payouts from the NCAA for their appearances, where the men, even if they come and lose right away, they get a, a fairly substantial payout. Um, wait, can you explain that a bit more? So if a men's team shows up to the tournament, they get a payout from the NCAA, but a, a winning women's team does not? Right. So you could win the entire championship and there would be no individual payout to, let's say, Baylor wins it. Baylor isn't going to receive money from the NCAA. Like how much would a payout be for a men's team for like just showing up? Or, um, what would that prize money look like? 
the NTA hasn't opened its books publicly. It's in the hundreds of thousands. I don't know if it's in the millions. Yeah, I think one of the things I'm struck by is this sort of like chicken and the egg. Uh, like what comes first, this sort of prioritizing of men's sports or is it driven by popularity? Is there backing behind the claim that men's sports are inherently more popular? Well, I think there's truth to the claim that they are more popular in terms of following. But I don't know about inherently more popular. I think it's, you know, we have centuries now of of associating sports with men. And so when people think of March Madness, when a lot of people think of March Madness, not me, but they think of men's basketball. A lot of coaches and players have been writing really powerful statements on social media and really calling for change. And then earlier this week, Mark Emmert of the NCAA called like called for an internal review of the league. Have you seen anything like this before? Will this go anywhere, do you think? I think it will go somewhere. I don't know how far it will go. I don't know if the larger deep-seated pattern of unequal resources and unequal respect will change. But I do think this is the most successful pressure that women have put on the NCAA and that they look bad. And those images of the weight room, Sedona Prince from Oregon, her, her TikTok videos were just right to the point. That was Susan Kahn, professor of history at the University of Buffalo and faculty expert on gender and sports. The NCAA did not respond to a request for comment about the league. We're in Central Park. It looks really, really calm and serene. Julia Sloan of Brooklyn, park enjoyer. We're sitting right by like the pond, uh, and there's just a little bit of fog on the horizon over there, muting out the lights a little bit. Even the sounds around us are very muted, like the pad of the dog's paws or just somebody's footsteps coming by. The cattails are standing on end, and the pond is like halfway frozen. Just a really chill place to be. Like it's a good way to find nature in New York without having to go upstate. I'm here with my boyfriend. It's our anniversary. <laughs> Probably gonna take a hot shower later tonight. Uh, watch a movie. It's kind of the vibe today. You're listening to Uptown Radio from Columbia Radio News. Podcast available Thursdays at 5 p.m. The HALT Solitary Confinement Act was passed by the New York State Legislature two weeks ago. The bill would reduce the number of days people can be held in solitary confinement to 15. That would align the state with the Nelson Mandela Rules, a U.N. standard denouncing extended solitary confinement as torture. And as Karen Manarajo reports, this practice uniquely affects women behind bars. There's a crowd of about 50 gathered in front of Governor Cuomo's office near Grand Central Station. It's a mix of advocates, legislators, and formerly incarcerated people, as well as their loved ones. All are united in their goal to end the use of solitary confinement. I went through solitary confinement and I can tell you it was nothing but absolute torture. Candy Haley calls herself a solitary survivor. After being accused of a crime, Haley was imprisoned at Rikers Island for three years. She was later acquitted. She was placed in solitary confinement as punishment for allegedly assaulting a corrections officer, a crime she denies. She's here today to demand Cuomo sign the HALT bill into law. I was denied sanitary napkins. I was denied showers. That's even when I'm menstruating. 
Solitary confinement in New York often means being isolated in your unit for 23 hours per day. Haley describes a small cell with a toilet uncomfortably close to where she ate her meals. She says the window in her unit could only be adjusted by prison staff. That meant, in summer, it felt suffocating. And the winter was often too cold to stand. She said she felt like a dog in a kennel that someone forgot about. And one occasion, I remember I ripped up my jumper, my Department of Correction jumper, and I put it there to catch the menstrual blood. And I got extra days in solitary because I destroyed DOC property, which was the jumper. Women in solitary confinement face unique challenges. They are more likely to have a history of trauma and face hurdles addressing their reproductive health needs. According to the Indiana Journal of Law and Social Equality, women of color, especially black women, are held in solitary confinement at higher rates than white women. For many women, the experience can take a severe toll on their mental health. The Correctional Association of New York reported two-thirds of self-harm incidents and suicide attempts occur while women are in confinement. Before experiencing solitary at Rikers, Haley said she hadn't experienced mental illness before. I try, I try to commit suicide every day, and the officers will tell me, oh, you're not doing it right. You're, not, you're, you're cutting um, left to right, you're supposed to go up and down. So I started going up and down. For Serena Ligori, the fight for the bill is also personal. Ligori is executive director of New Hour for Women and Children, an advocacy group for women in jails. I'm a survivor myself. I was in solitary um, at 19 years old, and that experience uh, was not only traumatizing the sensory deprivation, um, but the, tra the trauma is lasting. So it continues even after incarceration. Liguori has been fighting for this bill for more than a decade. For her, Halt's passage is like a celebration. In 2019, Cuomo vetoed a different version of the bill, saying its costs were too high. But a report from the Centers for Justice at Columbia University says limiting solitary confinement would save New York $132 million per year. The bill was delivered to the governor on March 19th. Cuomo now has 10 days to sign or veto the bill. The governor did not respond to our request for comment. Karen Manirajo, Columbia Radio News. Federal and state governments have tried to support unemployed Americans since the start of the pandemic. The CARES Act sent out stimulus checks, expanded unemployment eligibility, and gave workers extra money. But undocumented workers were not included. Now in New York, as lawmakers finalize the state's budget for the year, those workers are demanding relief. And they're doing that through a hunger strike. Katie Anastas reports. Patricia Avedaño steps away from the crowd and leans on a fence outside the Church of the Ascension. She rubs her eyes and takes deep, slow breaths. She's on the fourth day of a hunger strike. She and workers like her want additional state funding for undocumented workers who've had a particularly hard time during the pandemic. Me siento mal, pero, pero I feel bad, but I'm going to continue. While the politicians are sitting in their homes, there are many families, mothers, who can't feed their children because they've lost their jobs and they don't have unemployment benefits. Why? If I pay taxes, why don't you and I have the same rights? Why? I don't think it's right. More than 85 workers are participating in the hunger strike, now in its second week. 18 lawmakers and political candidates have done 24-hour fasts in support. Currently, the state Senate and Assembly budgets include $2.1 billion in funding for excluded workers. But the hunger strikers want more. They're asking for $3.5 billion. 
paid weekly that would give them the same level of benefits as other unemployed workers. The hunger strikers are part of a group called Make the Road New York. Angeles Solis is one of their organizers. She says these workers were among the first to lose their jobs in the pandemic. They include domestic workers, restaurant workers, construction workers, and street vendors. For many of our members, there is two pandemics. There is a pandemic for people who can work safely from home over Zoom. And then there is a pandemic that essential and excluded workers have to put themselves at risk every day in order to ensure other people can work from Zoom. Make the Road New York says more than half of the essential workers in New York City are immigrants. In April 2020, just 5% of those workers received unemployment insurance. Carmen De La Rosa is an assembly member who represents Washington Heights, Inwood, and Marble Hill. She says these workers remind her of her mother, a Dominican immigrant who made $10 an hour as a home health aide. Our communities have always been historically left behind by government service and by investment. These are the men and women that have kept our city afloat. State lawmakers have one more week to approve this year's budget. If they stick to the plan to provide undocumented workers with $2.1 billion in support, activists and workers say that will be a good start. Avedano says undocumented workers like her have put everything at risk during the pandemic to support New York. Now, she says, it's time for New York to support them. The pandemic doesn't distinguish between race, sex, economic situation. The pandemic affected everyone equally. But we're undocumented. We're the ones who do the most difficult jobs. We're paying the price. Why, if we all have rights? So I'll keep going. I'm here, and I'm going to continue. She says this strike isn't just about money. It's about equity. Katie Anastas, Columbia Radio News. Why is this night different from all other nights? That's the question asked each year at the Seder meal during the Jewish feast of Passover. This year, Jewish communities throughout New York City are preparing for virtual Seders, and faith leaders are offering advice on how to celebrate a holiday about liberation during a plague. We're joined today by Vicki Beto, a graduating student at the Jewish Theological Seminary in Manhattan. We're joined today by Vicki Beto, a graduating student at Jewish Theological Seminary in Manhattan. Thank you so much for joining us today, Vicki. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Can you tell us um, just how are communities in New York City preparing for the Seder meal and for Passover in a pandemic? One of the things that many synagogues are doing, including the place where where I work, um, is um, is ensuring that we have different types of virtual materials and um, and support for people who might be spending seder uh, either by themselves or just in a, a smaller setting than they usually do. Most synagogues have a what we call a communal Seder, so that even though the vast majority of American Jews celebrate Seder in their homes with their families, there are always some people who will go to the synagogue for a Seder. And so instead of that, communities will either do a Zoom Seder or record material um, and put them on YouTube so that that people can just follow along for the different uh, sections of of the Seder and tap in whenever they kind of are interested in, in some extra material or support or songs. And I just was curious what the tradition was um, in updating Haggadahs for current moments or to incorporate um, sort of new struggles or contemporary events. 
So the Haggadah is the kind of the instruction manual for the Seder evening that, that guides us throughout our conversations about slavery and redemption. And um, it actually comes from the word lehagid to tell because one of the main commandments of the Seder nights and of Passover is to tell the story of, of the Exodus, to tell the story of Passover to the next generation. Pandemic has opened up a, a whole new areas of questions around what does it mean to be celebrating freedom during a time of lockdown, during a time of, of fear, during a time of grief and death and everything that has come this past year. Um, and so several uh, organizations and synagogues have done like pandemic Haggadah supplements, where they really think about the Passover story and the Seder in relationship to the pandemic. And the best way to do that, the best way to truly feel that the Exodus is, is ours and is contemporary and is truly a, um, an experience of, uh, of our generation as well, is to think about it through the contemporary lens. So I think that it's very powerful to be thinking about um, not just the pandemic, but also questions about, about social justice and human rights and refugee crisis and race and a lot of the things that have been you know, in the air um, and thinking about those contemporary challenges um, as a lens through which we can view the, the Passover story. So yeah, celebrating this celebration of freedom in lockdown last year, were there any insights um, anything that struck you that you're going to take into this year's celebration with you? Everything, everything that happens in our tradition is also something that can be understood in the 21st century. And so when we, last year, when we were going through the plagues, which is one of the sections of, of the Seder, we repeat all the plagues that struck Egypt. And as we were going through these plagues, I don't think that there was a Seder in this country that did not think about what does it mean for us to be living under a plague. So yeah, so something that I'm, I'm really thinking about is how to make the past meaningful even under these difficult circumstances. Um, Vicki, thank you so much for joining us and have a wonderful rest of, of your day. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Chak Sameach. Happy, happy Passover. The art world is in an uproar about digital work, especially a new trend for pieces that come with a special certificate of authenticity called an NFT a non-fungible token. When someone buys a piece of NFT art, they're not buying the work itself. What they're paying for is the certificate, basically a piece of code. Two weeks ago, the auction house Christie's sold an NFT for $69 million, kicking off a craze that's left some scratching their heads. Kat Smith has the story on what's next for NFTs. At the Super Chief NFT Gallery on East 11th Street in Manhattan, workers in jeans are buzzing around, setting up for an art show tonight. Only, there's no art on the walls. Instead, 11 blank TVs are hanging in the space. They'll show colorful pieces of NFT art. Some will be animated and have sound. Anything that can be presented digitally at all is possible to be an NFT. So I think that's an incredible opportunity for everyone to get in the mix. That's Edward Zipko, owner of the Super Chief Gallery. He's planning to auction the NFTs, or digital certificates of authenticity, to the highest bidder. The artist gets a cut of the sale, like a usual gallery deal, but the next time that certificate gets sold, the artist gets a cut again. That's not typically how things work in the art world. And it's got people like Zipko super excited. The reason why this is the most important movement and moment in, I think, living history is that it provides artist royalties. That's the big thing. That's what makes it something 
to fight for and to make. Zipco is calling this the world's first NFT gallery opening, but actually others have beat him to the punch, like Atlanta-based artist and gallery owner Greg Mike. He's been hosting an NFT show for the past week. The highest bid he's gotten so far is $25,000. In the past, it's been hard for digital artists to make money off their creative work. Buyers often go for works they can touch, like an oil painting or sculpture. Now, these artists are featured in galleries, and they're making bank. That's what's really I find really cool about the space is how excited some of these purely digital artists are that now they're kind of being looked at as a real artist. You know? Tina Rivers Ryan is an art curator and historian who specializes in contemporary art. She's worried about all the hype around NFTs. If you go back and look at the history of what's being called the crypto art market, you can see that essentially there was no market before the beginning of this year. The volume of it was very small. But, she says, that's changed. It has skyrocketed um, both in volume and value, essentially, overnight. One big reason? Ryan says people are looking for a way to spend their high-value digital currencies. And what better place to put that than in digital art? Kat Smith, Columbia Radio News. Since the pandemic began, bike ridership in New York City has skyrocketed. The number of cyclists on bike paths has increased by up to 200 percent. The city's Department of Transportation is building more bike lanes to keep up with the boom in traffic. In the Bronx, as Renee Roden reports, residents want better bike infrastructure to help meet their transit needs. If you want to bike into Manhattan from the West Bronx, the only 24-hour path is on the Washington Bridge. It crosses the Harlem River at West 181st Street. The bridge has six lanes for cars, and pedestrians and cyclists share a path on the sides. But the pedestrian paths are only um, three and a half feet wide in, in sections. <laughs> Lusa Dang lives in the West Bronx. In Dang's neighborhood, only about one in 10 residents have access to a private vehicle. So Dang, like her neighbors, often opts for the path. And, and this path is being shared by, you know, people walking, cyclists, scooters, people on mopeds, people pushing strollers, shopping cars. I mean, you name it. I've actually even seen someone come over with a literal washing machine. Cecil Brooks is a lifelong resident of Mott Haven. He sees bike lanes as just one piece of the Bronx's transit puzzle. We still have a, a large amount of residential communities who don't have access to a subway line or a reliable bus service. Brooks says the limited access to public transportation in some Bronx neighborhoods goes back to the removal of the elevated train line that served the central Bronx until the 1970s. We have a huge transit desert all across the central Bronx because the 3rd Avenue L, which was taken out of commission decades ago, and hasn't really put anything um, as effective to, to fill in the gap. Some transportation advocates say that bike commuting can help fill in that gap, but only if riders feel safe. Nicholas Dagenbloom is a professor of urban planning at Hunter College. I think you'd probably need a dedicated bike path network there, uh, separate from traffic, just because traffic is very fast and very heavy on a lot of streets in the Bronx. And that takes a lot of money. 
The city's Department of Transportation has dedicated $20 million to renovating the 130-year-old Washington Bridge. But the plans do not include any additional space for bikes or pedestrians. Lusa Dang says the city should reallocate space on the bridge for bikes, like they have in other boroughs. While Mayor de Blasio has finally committed to taking away a car lane for, on the Brooklyn Bridge and the Queensboro, um, we'd love to see that kind of commitment for one of the Harlem River crossings. We reached out to the city's Department of Transportation. They responded in an email saying they were prioritizing protected bike lanes in the Bronx this year. According to their website, the Department of Transportation will add four miles of protected bike lanes in the Bronx. Meanwhile, the city plans to add about 25 miles in Brooklyn, and Manhattan will get 13. If I could talk to the people who have the deep pockets and tell them, look, hey, these bike lanes, we need to expand. Miguel Salamanca is 46 and commutes by bike twice a week from his home in the North Bronx to his office in Brooklyn. He says biking on the Bronx streets often feels dangerous. We need more education and we need more money and we need more spaces to ride. Next month, the city is scheduled to begin the renovations on the Washington Bridge, including repaving the current lanes of traffic. Renee Roden, Columbia Radio News. Well, that does it for this edition of Uptown Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. Executive producer Haley Zhao ran our show. Leading our staff of reporters was senior producer Fei Lu, with help from assistant producer Arcelia Martin. Senior editor Nicole McNulty and assistant editor Karen Monarajo led our copy team. Katie Anastas managed our website today, and Catherine Smith and Jack Truitt brought us today's news. Thanks to our instructors, Sally Herships, Ben Shapiro, and Patty Hirsch. I'm Renee Roden. And I'm Kate Stockram. Uptown Radio is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and uptownradio.org on Thursday evenings. From all of us here at Uptown Radio, thanks for listening and stay safe.